Welcome to the Dream Hub podcast, where we dive deep into the realms of self-discovery, creativity, and personal transformation. In today's episode, we have the privilege of sitting down with the multi-talented Jared Ray, a musician, a producer, a depth coach, and an advocate for rediscovering purpose, meaning, and freedom in our lives. Jared's vast array of skills and interests encompass music, psychology, spirituality, and much more, making him a fascinating guest to explore the depths of the human experience. With his background as an audio engineer, piano technician, music producer, pianist and composer, Jared combines his technical expertise with his profound understanding of Jungian psychology to create a unique blend of art and introspection. As an ambassador for the Young platform, he shares his wisdom through various platforms, including TikTok, where he has amassed an engaged following of over 70,000 people. Join us as we delve into the insightful conversations around the inner world, the power of dreams, the intersections of spirituality and psychology, and the profound journey towards self-realization. Hey, Jared, thanks for coming today. If you liked that music that you just heard as the intro, something a little bit different, this is off Jared's brand new album that he just released today. What an honor to have it on my podcast. Yeah, how fun. I wish I had that written up what you just said because it uh, sums me up really well. Good job. I'm, <laughs> I, I like what you, uh, how you did that. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll send it to you. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I need it in my bio somewhere. Okay, cool. <laughs> so your journey as a musician, producer, and depth coach is truly remarkable. I want to know, how did you discover your passion for these interconnected fields and how do they inform and inspire each other in your creative and coaching processes? Hmm. Well, I think that's a great question. I think uh, if we were to abstract what's common between all the things that I do is a sense of troubleshooting. I love to solve problems. Um, And this used to be a, a problem that I would create problems to solve problems um, because I was lucky. I grew up lucky. I had a really awesome childhood, a lot of um, fun growing up. And I think I just needed problems to solve. So I created a lot of my own problems, a lot of addiction, a lot of, I don't know, sad, sadness, depression, victimization. And like, I think when I started to problem solve, so I, I started engineering first, like audio engineering. And I found that I was really good at problem solving thinking big big picture zooming out and then seeing what would work the quickest for a fix and uh so in the studio that did really well saving saving people time and uh eventually that got to um well sorry i i engineering came second music music came first piano came first it's funny because my problem solving was how do i get away with not practicing yet appeasing my mother and my piano teacher it's like I, i'm sneaky right i was always trying to figure out how to cut corners when i was a kid how can i get better at piano and practice the least amount of time um and so i like figured out i didn't i mean looking back this is pretty insane but i would practice really really early in the morning like 5 a.m and i would kind of go to sleep while i was practicing 
and I realize now that I was like going into like probably theta wave or like, you know, I was going into the unconscious and just downloading like muscle memory. I was just doing certain Chopin uh, measures over and over and over again while I sort of drifted off. And so I think that kind of like downloaded. I was <laughs> I was figuring out how to sleep and practice at the same time. Um, really interesting. So anyway, um, that experience wasn't very creative it was very much so classical theory and I hated it I hated it so much and then eventually got into engineering and kind of was like screw music I don't want to do music I want to engineer and I want to produce and then I was just really natural at engineering and then once I stopped studying classical piano and I started forgetting all the rules became really fun to like play blues and and all these different things so I started being really creative in a similar way to how I problem solve I just zoomed way out um and then I got into piano teching and like I'm really good at piano teching which is even further zoomed in like a systems troubleshooting um yet you have to have like a very holistic view of a piano and then I started teaching teenagers audio engineering and music production at a nonprofit. And I was like, oh, I really like people. Um, I really like the problems that these people have. And I, I like solving, looking at them like systems in a certain way. Um, while simultaneously, I realized like I'm a feeler type. Like I really care for these individual experiences that these people have that make them individually good at these specific things, very different from each other. And so I realized I wanted to help people and I realized not teenagers because you can't do much for them because they have shitty parents usually. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, like it's really hard to help teens because um, there's not so much they can do. They can't really take hold of their life yet. Mm. Um, so then I started a TikTok where I was like, I'm just going to talk about ideas that pop into my head. I didn't necessarily know what kind of coaching I wanted to do. I wanted to be a mentor. I knew I liked mentorship. And then the TikTok and talking out loud really shaped where I was going. I'm constantly re-pivoting every day. Mm. You know, yesterday I was like, I'm going to be a musician again. Um, and like, if you would ask me six weeks ago, I was like burnt out on being a musician, you know? So it's like, I kind of just follow my passion. I follow my energy. And this is where I've ended up. It's a long answer, but... Yeah, <laughs> no, that's cool. Of course, it's going to be a long answer because you do so many different things. <laughs> um, okay, that kind of points me onto this thing that I was wondering about. So as a depth coach, that kind of leans, leans into it as a depth coach, you're guiding individuals into discovering or rediscovering their purpose, meaning and their freedom. So could you share a particular transformative experience that you've witnessed in your coaching practice that kind of exemplifies the power of self-exploration and alignment with personal values? Yeah, I a common theme that I've seen is a lot of people coming to me. Really, what it is that I do is I identify what your values are and then validate you for them. Um because a lot of us, especially people like me, grew up being told that what we value is not correct or maybe not specifically being told that, but by not being rewarded financially or through attention, we were told that our values were not right. I know in America, 
having many, many, many passions and jumping from one to one to one to one. I was called wishy-washy growing up. I was mm. called very, very um, like I lacked dedication. Uh, that's just not true at all. And now people are like, how do you have the willpower to do these things? I'm like, I don't have willpower. I just do what I want to do. I don't know. Uh, I just follow. It's like someone's pushing me forward. I just yes. fall forward. And uh, if I was to say what was common with a lot of my clients is that they needed to be validated in their passions that are all over the place. Um, I think it's human to be excited about a lot of different things and have cycles of passion. And we think like this idea of career, this idea of linear progression, this idea of um, I need to be this thing and I need to know it by the end of high school when I'm a child um who doesn't know anything about the world yet uh i think that there's a lot of especially in the late 20s where you realize what the hell have i been doing and what do i want to do um and so what i've seen is people being surprised that they're okay how they are that's like the biggest yeah. thing i've noticed is people aren't broken it's just that they have to be validated for what they are it's like no 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 you don't need to change I mean, yes. sometimes you do. I did. <laughs> I needed to get rid of a lot of things in my, because, yeah, we'll go into that if you ask me about it. Well, but. that's the thing. It's guidance, really. It's not saying you need to completely change. You're just kind of guiding them to the part that's best suited for them. Saying maybe right. let those other parts fall away because that's not suited to you as such. Maybe guiding them into the right direction like you did for me. You did some personality testing for me the other day. And that validated me in my career change that I've recently had into becoming a dream therapist. And I was so excited to go home and say to my husband, guess what? Like, this is the perfect job for me because it suits my personality type because of blah, 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 blah. And that's why the old job wasn't fulfilling me. So I found that really, really interesting and really helpful. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's the validation, but it's also we can identify which values maybe aren't your own and that when you lean into yes. them, they're draining and exhausting. And and then you're like, why am I depressed and tired all the time? It's because you're not doing it. You're not getting into the right cognitive state that fuels you. Yes. Yes. So you've been exploring different personality types that are based on cognitive functions, such as extroversion and introversion, thinking, feeling, sensation, intuition, and judging, perceiving. So this is what you help people to understand about themselves. Would you like to explain a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I think most people have heard of Myers-Briggs and like um, extroversion and introversion for sure. These are terms that Jung, Carl Jung came up with um, that Myers and Briggs actually uh, maybe expounded on slightly, but then also sort of neutered the depth of it and the nuance of it to become more digestible to a larger population and there's good things and bad things about that they added the perceiving and judging and and it makes a lot of sense but the framework that jung really worked with was this idea that we're dominantly extroverted or introverted but maybe only by a, a little tiny bit like we all have both introversion and extroversion and what those terms really mean is extroversion means is a movement of libido or psychic energy life force into the outer world external world extroverted versus a recoiling of that libido or life force inward into the subjective world which is introversion so extroversion and introversion means 
expending energy into the outer world or expending energy into the inner world. And both of these things need to happen to be healthy. So technically, everyone should be ambidextrous or sorry, ambiverted. You don't have to be ambidextrous. <laughs> um, and so just I guess what I'm trying to get at is that the nuance of this framework is tenfold. Like it gets very, very complicated. And so I always try to preface what I do with this is that it's way more nuanced and we're just using a framework to look at reality. It's not reality itself. It's glasses that we put on to be like, okay, this helps me orient a little bit and create some anchors and some some guidance here. Um, and the purpose for this is to identify our values and identify what isn't our values and what is competing internally and what's being pressed upon us externally by our parents and by our society or our religions, our schooling systems, um, and why maybe we struggle in certain systems while we don't struggle in other systems. So if we can identify these, you can be validated, which for me, I thought I was broken my whole life until mm. I realized like, oh, I'm just an extroverted intuitive, which is the opposite of what my schooling was trying to get me to do. Yes. No wonder I didn't enjoy myself. But when it comes to, you know, feeling and thinking, sensing and intuition, perceiving, judging, we technically have all of this within us. So it's not that you're not one thing and you are another. It's how much do you value each of these parts of you? And the reason we value them is because they reward us. And when I say reward, I mean like serotonin, dopamine, like uh, you mm. get charged up. I call it like your charging port, like your phone getting plugged in and charged. There's certain ones that will charge you and certain ones that will drain you kind of on a sliding spectrum. So yeah, identifying these is something that I've gotten really, really good at. It's like troubleshooting. It's like doing an yeah. Rubik's Cube. I really yeah. like solving problems. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. When you did my personality typing, it turns out that you and I are both the exact same personality type. And I felt the same. I felt broken because all through school, I struggled so much. And yeah, I, I didn't work the way that they wanted me to work. I wasn't getting charged by solving maths problems. That wasn't my thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was very more creative and wanting to just sing and dance and do whatever I felt like. So um yeah, now that you've explained my personality type, it's sort of like finding where I can do those things in the world and where the world wants me to do that. I'm not going to be a banker. I'm going to be something that's a lot more creative. It's really interesting. And I wish that, you know, I knew this when I was a lot younger, but that then started to make me think I understand that the outside beliefs of like your parents and, and things that are put on you over time in your life affects the way that we are. But are people born with their own personality type? Like, is this baby just popped out and it's already got its own personality type? Or is it some, are we all equal? And then depending on the situation that we're born into, it changes? Do you know? Or not sure? I mean, it's very, very much so debated. Um, okay, so there's general consensus within typology, which is what we're talking about, that suggests that it's likely that you were born with a preference. I am very interested in this stuff personally. One of the things I'm interested in is the concept of community as a system or as an organism, right? Like let's say our bodies are full of organs and each of the organs are full of cells and the cells 
are made up of smaller parts of made up of smaller smaller parts essentially everything that's small makes up a larger unit makes up a larger unit and then you get to the human body and we kind of assume we're it we're the top but that's not at all true we are a part of another system another organ or an organism um, which is you know humanity and we can look at it maybe it's smaller like the community or even the family and just like a stem cell is born with a clean slate this is a fascinating uh, answer to the, your question because mm. it contradicts what i just said and this is how i work i contradict myself mm -hmm. but a stem cell is born equally all of them are the exact same and then depending on their environment they manifest into or i don't know if manifest is the right word but into what is needed for whatever cell or organism mm. or organ in your body so they're dependent on where they are where they're sent to they turn into what they need to um, based off of the environment that they're in similarly we're born into a, a family or into a community and there's going to be certain needs that are not being met there's going to be tyranny or the the value systems will be tilted in a certain direction and so i believe that when we're born there is a blueprint of homeostasis of balance that if the organism is slightly out of balance the blueprint will compensate will overcorrect by sending you with different values mm -hmm. um, or balancing values i don't have a lot of evidence for this it's metaphysical it's spiritual but yeah. this concept is very interesting to me where we are being born into systems that are in like there's a, a blueprint for these systems meaning it's working everywhere everything our bodies are constantly working on balance on homeostasis it wants mm. to return to homeostasis we get stuck in trauma we get stuck in fear we get but it wants to return to homeostasis similarly i believe our communities want to return to homeostasis our government we i mean in america we have this left wing and the right wing and it's you know it's a plane that won't fly without one or the other um it's compensating it gets tyrannical in one way and then the other wing pulls up and then it pulls up and it pulls up and it looks like chaos but in reality it keeps the plane flying mm -hmm. um, in a similar way our values being different from each other in a community keeps it afloat and so i do think that we are born with a preference based off of what will bring balance to the organism mm. if, that, if that makes sense yes that's a great answer that's very interesting but there's more because we are 100% influenced by our environment, right? So your parents have a certain set of values and they might not let you explore the functions to the point where you might not discover your purpose or your rewarding function. You might not discover what actually charges you because your parents don't value it and don't let you get into it. So when that happens, I think I would consider it developmental trauma in some way where you're not able to find your charging port. Mm -hmm. And so you grow up feeling wrong or feeling broken or low energy. And so you also will type incorrectly. You will come up on these like Internet uh, personality types uh, as incorrect types because you haven't ever found your correct type. So you are using the wrong functions so you can technically be like let's say you type as an infj you could technically not be an infj because maybe your family in your upbringing it was um, rewarded to show up as an infj yeah. yeah yeah so like subconsciously you're answering those questions in the way that you think is right but not the way that's actually true to your heart because you've never been able to try doing things the other way 
Yeah, you've never even explored what's true to you. Yeah. Aw. I feel sad for those people. Maybe they it's should a lot. Give, it's a they lot should give people. you a call for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's like I swear it's probably like ninety percent of people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. psychology is also known as analytical psychology and it's a psychological framework and theory developed by the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung. So he explores the depth of the human psyche emphasizing on exploration of the unconscious mind and the integration of various psychological elements. So at the core of Jungian psychology is the concept of the collective unconscious shared symbolic images and archetypes that are present in all individuals across cultures and time and this also relates to dreaming now for those of us who don't understand Jungian psychology or what on earth is an archetype would you be able to give us some explanation about these things <laughs> yeah i can try I, I um archetypes is such an interesting concept because it, it's i don't believe jung ever wanted it to be defined very very concretely he his work is really interesting because he's always writing and and uh contradicting himself and almost making sure that people can't fully grasp what he's talking about because he doesn't know for sure either and he wants me to know that as a reader that he's like these are just what we're witnessing and so they're psychic facts meaning people experience this whether what that means who knows but the fact that they experience these things is true and what i mean by these things is patterns or what i would call motifs of human experience a motif is a similar word or a different word for archetype a motif for any musicians out there you know you hear through a concerto or a symphony you'll hear the same motif and it will you know have a, a slightly different arrangement in the second part and then the third part might have a, a, a whole different arrangement but you can hear the same motif in the core of it uh, similarly archetypes are patterns of behavior patterns of human experience stories that if you extracted them from each individual like let's say a sibling rivalry growing up right that's a pretty common thing mm-hmm I didn't necessarily, well, maybe I had it a little bit, but I'm sure a lot of people experience this. And if you take this sibling's rivalry and this sibling's rivalry and these two brothers' rivalry and these two brothers' rivalry, and you extract their stories into common themes, eventually you get to, there's many, many different mythologies around the two brothers who are fighting, like Cain and Abel in the Bible. Um, There's more, but I haven't, I'm still young. I have lots of studying to do. Um, but that's just one single example. There's unlimited. There's an inf- infinite amount of archetypes. That's what's mm-hmm. so confusing is that we just point out the ones that are the most common. The good example that Jung uses a lot is the, the idea mm-hmm. of like a, a crystal that has a blueprint of the shape it's going to grow into before it's even growing into it. And mm-hmm. then when it, it grows into the blueprint, into the archetype, or into the motif there's a you know a quartz crystal has a specific motif mm. um, all over the world the image itself exists prior to the actual crystal yes. very fascinating another so one my... i was thinking of is like the mother 
the great father, the great mother, there's um, the jester, there's the eternal child, or I mean, there's so many, but I have specifically, like I stayed away from just looking at like the popular, the popular named ones, the, the mm-hmm. archetypes that I've played with the most and studied the most. And when I say played with, I do dream work as well. Yes. I, I, my foundation psychologically for my own personal growth has been dream work. And uh, what I've encountered the most and worked with the most is the anima, which is the feminine within a masculine psychology, which, by the way, doesn't mean that if you are a female, you don't have an anima, you also have it, but you have an animus. Anima and animus are representative of the polarity of a masculine, which is the anima, and a polarity of the feminine, which is the uh, animus. But they intertwine and they mix together and, you know, you get the the whole spectrum, but we're looking at a framework and that's why it's polarized is because we're looking at not reality, but again, a framework. So those two are probably the most interesting to me are the anima animus Mm. because they're what pull us into the world and towards people we're attracted to and love, which I find Mm. very fascinating. I think when we're talking about polarities, um, opposite, we, we have to sort of start with in my opinion, the most abstract, the the universe, the reality that we exist in exists because of a positive and a negative, meaning everything is manifested in this reality because of a magnetic polarity, opposites, plus and minus. So within the fourth dimensional object that is the universe, there is duality within it. And that duality is what the universe wouldn't exist without it. So it's not men and women it's not like sex organs that we're talking about here. Mm. we're talking about the fundamental polarity of the universe and we've just called it masculine and feminine because we like to project uh, our human experience onto everything um it just makes the most sense to us right and so when we're talking about masculine and feminine i like to look at it as like my earliest conception of it was a straight line versus a circle Straight line, masculine. Circle, feminine. You can get into the symbolism of that. You could say the straight line is solar, where you have the sun that's just constantly bright, versus lunar, which is a cyclical nature of um, the moon, right? And um, we have, within art, you have round curves versus straight lines, and you have softness versus harshness. The terms we've decided to use is masculine and feminine. And with this comes a lot of complexity within our own self. So like we house both of these things. When we're born, we house the totality of these energies. But what's fascinating about the ego is that it it works in duality. It says, well, if I'm masculine, I can't also be the opposite of that. So it dismisses what it thinks it can't also be. This is normal. So growing up, dismissing your your opposites to become an identity what mm-hmm. that's what the ego does is it it wants to anchor in and and make sure that it's your perception is solid so that you don't drift off into schizophrenia or into um psychosis right so this dismissal of the opposite is really really quite natural and important in your younger years but what happens is that we stiffen up and we don't allow in the other opposites even though they're still within us we're just repressing them we're just not acknowledging their existence and so what's fascinating about this stuff is that what is not conscious to us we project it outward onto everyone else this is what really fascinating because you're going to be attracted to what 
would make you complete meaning what's your opposite that you've repressed that's unconscious to you that you're projecting outwardly so you're going to be attracted to people who are opposite of you in a lot of ways this being said it doesn't mean you have to be fully masculine and you'll be attracted to feminine or fully feminine will be attracted to masculine. There's going to be bits and pieces of all of it, but it will be kind of like opposites, but it kind of like very complex, right? Mm. Um, so you could have an androgynous psyche, let's say, and be attracted to an opposite of that. It won't look so simple as masculine and feminine, but it still works the same way. So long, long, long story short is that what we don't identify with is within us still but repressed because we have the totality of our of both energies in us when we're born we can start to access our opposites and become conscious of them and as we hold masculine and feminine in us it's paradox it's it's hard for the ego but it begins to transcend that level of consciousness as we begin to hold paradox consciously we grow in consciousness we become higher conscious beings this is what Jungian psychology is all about is holding paradox in the ego it's not get rid of the ego it's assimilate your opposites into the ego old paradox so if you're overly masculine masculine your answers all lie in incorporating the feminine if you're overly feminine all of the answers lie in incorporating the masculine that's just how it is so the truth is is that it's it's interesting because you can witness this happening to people in their older age my mom's becoming very stern and harsh and like rolls her eyes at my dad a lot now and my dad's getting all soft and uh and emotional and and it's in their older age they're flopping swipping spots because switching <laughs> um, uh, well, I, I like the word swipping i think i'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah swipping um it sounded really yeah quite natural yeah. huh um <laughs> But in, in Jungian psychology, it's about speeding it up so that you can enjoy more sobriety. I use that word uh, meaning like peace of mind. Mm. Um, I think the original term or the original definition was something like a spiritual peace. Kind of like so, being your own source of happiness and not relying yeah. on anything else externally to fulfill that want. Is that what you mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's we're humans, we still are going to be part animal and we need companionship and community for sure. But the concept is that you can become a whole individual who doesn't need anyone else. And thus everything is bonus. Everything is beautiful. It's the cherry on top. It's the sprinkles on top of the cupcake. Yeah, that what you are looking for in a partner, in a job, passion, whatever it is, is actually dormant within your unconscious mind. And that mm -hmm. sounds bizarre. And if you would have told me that five years ago, I would have said some mean things to you. But now I'm like, oh, that's where it all is. That makes sense. Thank you for explaining and that. It, that's awesome. You're welcome. And the funnest part about all of this is that it comes to you in your dreams. Your yes. opposites will show up in your dreams. Excellent. So that's the tip really is to pay attention to your dreams and then take action from yes. them. Yes. Great. I love dreams. You love dreams. Let's talk about dreams. So dreams play a significant role in Jungian psychology. How do you approach dream analysis and interpretation? And how can individuals utilize their dreams to gain insights into their subconscious and use that to embark on a journey of self-discovery? The first thing that I do is when I wake up, I write the dream down, which 
I'm sure you've talked about this on a lot of your podcasts, but writing down your dream tells you your ego. It tells your conscious mind, hey, this is important. We want to remember this. You have to trick yourself into thinking dreams are important because the ego doesn't like dreams. Mm. The ego wants to dismiss them mm -hmm. because they're confusing. They don't adhere to the same rules as the ego does. So it says, this is bullshit. Um, <laughs> and that's, it's just absolutely not true. But writing it down tells the ego, hey, we're going to pay attention to this. We want to keep paying attention to this. But after I write it down, while I'm writing it down, I'm seeking out which part of the dream makes me feel the loudest. What's the loudest emotion in my dream? What's the loudest image? What's the uh, most vivid part of the dream? And then after I write it down, I usually sit in my bed cross-legged. It might be the middle of the night. It might be in the morning, whatever. I sit and I might be, I want to be slightly still asleep. I like that. I like to be a little lucid. And I sit in the loudest part of the dream and hold up. Like uh, if it's a, an emotion, fear, um, excitement, whatever it might be, I sit in it and I try to navigate my body and, and find where I'm feeling that dream. Where in my body is it manifesting? So really what's happening is that the dream is spitting up emotions or it's using symbols or stories, images to portray or elicit emotion that is dormant and needs to be digested. Hmm. It's stuck emotion or stuck content that needs your conscious attention. Conscious mind and our unconscious mind work as a team if we're paying attention to each other. They're there to compensate each other. And so when I sit and navigate my body to find where I'm feeling tension or where I'm feeling butterflies or where what what's going on in my body, that often will open a portal to more emotion. So I'm using a dream to access they're like little doorways into more so if you can grab a section of your dream one tiny little bit it will often pull into the dense reality and come like with it comes much much more so the way that i use dreams is not very analytical i'm not diving into symbolism i'm not doing these things that much i'm more so saying what's the emotion here it, then I will dive into the symbolism because it's very fun. Um, and you start to see patterns. Uh, I, I would advise anyone here listening to don't think of it like one dream, analyze it. One dream, analyze it. Do a month of dreams and start to see what has a common theme here. What motifs are showing up? What archetypes are showing up? Am I driving in a car in every single one of these? Where am I going? What's the journey? Am I stuck? Am I running into brick walls? I've had dreams about running into brick walls. Um, <laughs> I've had dreams about being in the back seat while someone falls asleep in the front seat running into a brick wall, ah. um, which is very symbolic. Actually, this is a side note. After I've studied typology so much and cognitive function, I use uh, personalityhacker.com. They have a book, but they also have a, a model for a personality type. They call it the, the car model. And uh, essentially, it's like your personality shows up as a driver, a co-pilot, a 10-year-old, and a three-year-old in a car. And my dream started utilizing that symbolism for me. So it will speak to me through that framework um, or that so model. Clever. Really cool. Yeah. When I started picking up on this, I was like, whoa, this is like my dreams are intelligent. My unconscious yeah. mind is millions of years older than my ego. Yes.
Our unconscious minds are so smart. People don't realize yeah. this. Yeah. They're literally Amazing. like they're leagues ahead of us. Yes. Our bodies are leagues ahead of us. Yeah, that was a really, really good answer. I loved it. I'm like sitting here hanging on your every word like, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm glad. For anyone who's wanting to be able to label their emotions when they're going through dream um, therapy for themselves, I've actually on my website got a big picture of the emotion wheel and it has tons and tons of emotions. So it's got the main ones in the middle, so like anger, and then it branches off from anger and it labels a few different other types and then it branches off from that. So if you are having a dream and you think, God, I felt angry in that dream, but you can't quite put your finger on where else in your life it could relate to or what's going on for you, have a look at the emotion wheel and you'll be able to kind of pinpoint down to the specific emotion that you're feeling in anger. Like, is it resentment? Is it like jealousy? Like what's going on there? And then when you can figure that out, that really helps to to figure out what's actually going on. Do you at all use depth psychology framework or Jungian psychology to enrich your artistic expression? Mm, oh, yeah. The way that I look at my music is that I have a soul, which I also call my anima. I also call it Ellie. She calls herself Ellie in my dreams. It's my inner opposite. It's everything that makes me feel alive. So what happens with the anima or the soul is that we're not in touch with what makes us feel alive. So we think we need something outside of us. And the anima projects, projects the soul projects onto somebody else or even let's say, well, for me, a lot of times, like right now, I'm projecting on a lot of musicians, singers, where I'm like, oh, my God, I want, I'm in love. <laughs> like I'll hear someone singing. And I'm like, I'm in love. <laughs> and uh, and I immediately know that I want to sing. I don't need them although I'm sure it would be fun to get to know them and it, yeah. maybe we could even date, whatever. But the the true, the lifefulness that I think they will give me is actually the attribute that I'm seeing, the the singing or the, you know, them on stage being passionate about the thing that they love, where I then look at that and I say, oh, I want to be performing. I want to be singing. I need to do that because my soul is asking me to do that. So when it comes to my music, I'm constantly looking at what I'm attracted to or pulled towards in context of what my soul wants. The only reason I make music is because my soul's asking me to. I don't even want to be a musician. <laughs> like it's like my soul is like, you don't have a choice. This is what I want. Yesterday I had my therapy session and what we're working on is creating masculine space for my feminine soul to express herself. That is what I'm doing. That's what a musician is, in my opinion, is someone who is creating space for their unconscious to express that itself. The collective even sometimes, you know? Mine feels a lot more personal, I think. But when you get to down to the roots of human experience, it's quite relatable all over the place. I think most people would resonate with like a deep expression of human mm -hmm. emotion, you know? Um, I have something that kind of really simplifies that that I want to ask you. So let's say there's a chick and she's just really attracted to football players and she has football player boyfriend after football player boyfriend. Does this mean that she should be kind of embracing her masculine side or she should be going and playing football herself or getting into some kind of a sport rather than projecting it onto the kind of guys that she thinks she should be dating? 
That's a great question. And I think it pertains to the individual. What is it about the football player that she's attracted to? Is it yeah. um, the safety of a, like oh, a yeah. muscly man? Because that could or the be, income. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So it could right. be that, you know, and this is where it gets a little interesting because it's like, well, there's nothing wrong with dating a football player. No, yeah. Um, in fact, if they can create safety for you and like you feel comfortable, like you should definitely do that. But be aware that you need them to have that safety and that maybe yeah you could go take a taekwondo class or something yeah you could find actually, out within like, yourself exactly maybe you don't need to become the breadwinner of the family but maybe find something you're passionate about that could bring in a little bit of money if you were ever in a tight situation and then you don't need someone as much and that neediness will often drive people away like this is something i've been thinking a lot about in context of masculine and feminine if i can make room for my feminine and accept my feminine as a masculine person i no longer need it from you uh, a woman outside of me I no longer am needy and grabby because I know I have it within myself. And so I can actually, rather than feel lack when I see a beautiful woman, I can be ecstatic about it and be mm. like, oh my gosh, so beautiful. Thank yeah. you for being alive. <laughs> and meet her there. Yeah. Yeah. And hold that space for them. And maybe I don't say that to them or whatever, but um, you have to read the room. But there's a a lack that a man can experience if they don't know their own femininity mm. and then they just feel needy yes, and grabby. So if you can find it within yourself, you no longer need it from someone and you actually end up um, in much healthier relationships. Yes, definitely. Yeah. That's coming to mind for me, like those really macho dudes. They just, just from my own personal experience, the egotistical macho dudes are very needy and very insecure and very like, what are you doing? I need you to come over. I need to be talking to you all the time. And it's just weird. But that makes yeah. so much sense when you explain it that way now. So I'm going to have to update your bio and add in relationship counselor. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to do relationship counseling. I um... The next thing that I wanted to talk about is tarot. So you do tarot cards. Tarot is another area of interest that you explore. I wanted to get your thoughts on tarot. How does it work? It works on many different le uh, levels. The way that I approached it very first was an analytical psychological perspective. So have you heard of the ink blot, the Rorschach ink blot test? So in, and it's an early psychology test where it would have uh, an ink blot, like a pattern of ink smashed in a paper and you show it to your patient and then say, what do you oh, see? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. they start talking about all the sexual repression or whatever. Right. And, uh, yeah. or they see a butterfly or whatever. And it says a lot about their psychology. It's not the best method, but it is a method of, um, association, maybe, mm -hmm. um, word association, image association. So Freud was very interested in association where you take a dream symbol and you associate all the way to wanting to have sex with your mother or whatever, right? Mm. <laughs> that was what Freud was very yeah. into. Um, <laughs> Jung must have was had like, a hot mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, uh, that was, that's hilarious. I bet that um, I've been seeing a lot of memes about Freud's, uh, Freud's relationship to his mother.
obviously. Yeah. But, um, but Jung disagreed with that. He said, no, we need to stay with the, the dream symbol. We don't want to wander too far off from the actual dream. So we stay within a, a circle around and associate this way. But um, so dream symbols work exactly like tarot symbols work. So tarot is a series of symbols, meaning images that are not, they don't have exact meanings. They're portals. They're little doorways to more information. Mm -hmm. or to archetypes, mm -hmm. motifs in human experience. So if I'm pulling tarot and there is a motif that shows up that all of a sudden I'm resonating with, my conscious mind says, wait a minute, why is there energy here? Um, what happens is that we can project our unconscious motifs onto symbols that resonate on the same motif or are depicting the same motifs and then bounce it back into our conscious mind. This is one perspective. There's many perspectives on tarot, but this is how I started, was using the symbols of the tarot to see what resonates with my unconscious mind. They don't always resonate, but what I started to notice was that as I started to find or pull cards that resonated a lot, I started to build strange relationships to them. And I started to understand how I felt when certain cards showed up. And then I started to notice that they would show up at similar times as those emotions showed up. So over time, I started to realize that there was something more going on when it comes to what Jung called synchronicity, which is mm -hmm. a non-cause and effect reality, a parallel paradigm that's going along with cause and effect, but it's not cause and effect, meaning the stars aren't causing my personality, as in an astrology. But a lot of people will argue that astrology is about stars causing your personality. That's not what it is. Maybe more so modern, that's how people look at it, but that's not it. It's about, it's about meaning, the synchronicity of experiencing an inner experience, like an emotion. I'll give you an example. Yeah. I had a dream three nights ago where, okay, first I pulled the tower, and then that evening I dreamt about my home, my childhood home, me and my mother in it, it tumbling down a mountain and smashing us over and over again, like the walls collapsing and everything was just smashing, right? So I pulled the tower. Then I had this dream of my childhood home falling apart and smashing us. I survive and my mom says, stay on top of it. Stay on top of it. The next morning I pulled the chariot and the chariot I've always seen as motion forward, whether you want it or not whether you join the motion or not. And I see it like a surfer jumping on a wave or getting thrown and thrusted forward in the wave and slamming into the coral and not being on top of it, but being moved by it anyways. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. You could ride it or you can, or you'll be thrown forward mm -hmm. by it's it. It's like life. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is what the chariot really depicting, I think, is like there's movement coming and you can get on top of it or you can get swept up by it. So the dream, my mom says, stay on top. So there's the tower, then the falling apart home, which is very symbolic of my psyche, my childhood home, where I built my psyche, my ego. Mm -hmm. um, it's crumbling and my mother's getting smashed in it. So this has something to do with my mother complex probably. Or then I pull the tarot and then this girl that I'm talking to, randomly, while we're doing tarot with some other friends, she says, gotta ride the wave which felt it was totally out of context. Like I, I had no idea why she said it, 
But I was like, why did you say that? Um, and she's like, I don't know. <laughs> but it was really interesting because in the dream, my mother's saying, stay on top of it. And then I pull the tarot or the chariot, which is I've always described it to my friends and everyone knows I describe it as getting on top of the wave. And then she says, ride the wave. And so these are what you would call meaningful instances that aren't causal. The tarot, I didn't cause the dream that caused the other tarot pole that caused her to say that. These are manifestations of an archetype that is in a different realm, like a blueprint, like the crystal has a blueprint. And then these instances grew up into the form of these weird synchronicities. This it's a very complex concept and I don't know if that is the best explanation. It is. Well, to me, I feel like synchronicities, it's not a coincidence, but it kind of feels like at first, if you don't believe it, it feels like a coincidence. Like you're thinking about something specific and then all of a sudden that specific thing happens in real life as you are thinking about it. And you're like, oh, it's just a coincidence, but then it just keeps happening. And what I feel like it is, is it's like when you do something in life, there's waves, there's a ripple effect, right? And then I feel like the the synchronicities is it's a ripple effect, but it's coming from another realm, coming into waking reality. So it's like, you think that the world is just like this reality, like this hard desk, this room, but really there's so many other layers that we can't even see that are affected by our movements and our thoughts and what we do. And it's when the things from the other realm kind of reach through to us and pop up into this reality and go, hey, guess what? There's more to life than what you think there is. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's the crack in the cosmic egg. It's the. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's the. Um, I often see this like so this experience for me, it's different than like, oh, that's a coincidence because it feels weird. Yeah. Like it was like, what? It was weird, right? Like it's yes. like this is kind of creepy a little bit, or like it's eerie. It's dark. Yes. It's like a. It's the unconscious reaching in and saying, "Yeah, there's more than meets the eye," and it will be. A lot of times, it's uh, it can kind of shake the ego a bit. Yes, the little mini ego death. That and that's how I have described it on my TikTok before. It's like their little. It's like your ego is getting a little broken open, and then the unconscious is rushing in. Yes. Like dreaming while you're awake. Yes. Yeah. That but is it's so not funny. fake. That's what's the weird part is that it's like a, it's a real phenomenon. It's like a, meaning the likelihood of that series of things happening is very, very low. Statistically, mm. it does. It's not probable. So what it is, is it's and Jung goes into this in his theory on synchronicity, but it's it's not likely that this happens purely by chance. And this is the fancy word we use in the left brained scientific um materialistic view of the world as we say oh it's just random chance Um, but random chance is a miracle that's the the old word for it was miracle so jung's book on synchronicity his theory on synchronicity is actually just he's redefining miracle really interesting oh right, right, right what would you say to someone who doesn't believe in tarot I really don't think any should anybody should be asking anybody else to believe in tarot. There's nothing to believe in. I don't think mm. there's just um, symbols. Symbols are real. Symbols are facts, meaning they're images on a card. Mm. See what happens in your brain. See what happens when you look at them and say, what comes up in my mind when I look at this card? I would I would recommend people don't look at the little booklet that it comes with. Look at the symbols and see what comes up in your mind. Make your own meaning. It's way, way more effective 
And what I mean by effective is that this is a process to expand your consciousness, become more aware of what you're not aware of. That's why we do tarot, is to become more aware. So use the cards to spark content in your unconscious mind to become conscious of it. That's mm. that's what tarot is for. So do you feel that you should do your own tarot card readings rather than going to someone else for a tarot reading? It's a good question. I trust about one out of every 10 tarot readers I, I meet. Most of them are smart and not malicious, but we get, we get so stuck to our uh, preconceptions of what a card means that we can give some advice or direction that might be disorienting or mm. take us farther away from what's truly happening. Mm. So I don't get my tarot read very often no. unless Absolutely. I really like someone's intuition. Yeah, because otherwise they could just be projecting what their own symbolic meaning of those cards is for themselves onto you when it could be something right. completely different. Exactly. Kind of like how we should never just tell someone what their dream means. You need to exactly. be doing dream interpretation together so that I could say, well, do you think it could be this? Do you think it could be this? And it resonates rather than me going, your dream means this. Yes. And that's a great way to look at a tarot reader. If they're telling you, you're going to meet your husband in three weeks. I I would say take, Get a it, refund. With a, <laughs> yeah, take it. I was going to say, take it with a grain of salt. I That's a red flag for me. It's funny. I was going to say it's not so divinatory, but it actually kind of is too. So, because when we when we pick up on a motif, let's say I hear Beethoven's motif, uh, whatever the Ninth Symphony or whatever, we can hear half of it, and we know what the other half is going to be because we know what the motif is, right? In a similar way, if there is a pattern happening in someone's life, it's pretty easy to see the pattern and say, "Oh, you're going to end up over there." Does that make sense? We can see the end of the song. Um, and this is pattern recognition. Some people have a high value of intuition, of mm. pattern recognition, unconscious pattern recognition. And these people will be better at predicting where you're going to end up based off of where you are now. So there are certain people that do possess a talent of predictive tarot reading, but always take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Don't take it so seriously. Don't take it like, so seriously. Yeah. Don't get too wrapped up in it. Mm. Take it. Because, for instance, one thing that you could do, I never read tarot extrovertedly, meaning I always see it as an internal relationship with the individual inner parts. Mm. I don't ever see like, oh, you're going to meet a woman. It's like, no, you're going to meet the woman inside of you. Mm. you know? Oh, that's so cool. The intersection of spirituality and psychology is an area that intrigues many. So how do you see these two realms complementing each other? And what insights can people gain from exploring the connections between spirituality and psychological well-being? Great question. Spirituality to me is a sense of belonging, connectedness. Okay, so what the ego does, we're born, the ego separates itself from infinite possibilities and says, I am this, I am Jared experiencing time space from the single pinpoint of perspective. I am no longer the infinite universe. I am this tiny little thing, right? And the purposes of the ego is to differentiate itself from everything. Um, but what happens is that it continues to differentiate itself. It, it continues to say, I am separate from I am separate from, I am separate from. So when the ego gets out of hand, when it gets blown up, when it gets too excited, and this happens for many different reasons, you become isolated from connectedness. You become separate. 
and this is where loneliness and suffering and um everything neurosis all of the mental disorders everything happens from this secession is the word i've been using this movement away from the wholeness of the unconscious by the ego and the ego gets really really aggressively independent it says i'm the best i am separate from and i'm on top of my body i can i can uh, dictate how this body works right um and that separateness leads to alcoholism it leads to drug addiction it leads to self-medication it leads to everything and i'm speaking from personal experience so what psychology does specifically jungian psychology analytical psychology is it says your ego is important but not that important <laughs> it's sub it should be subservient or it should be submissive to the unconscious mind it should be secondary it's not mm -hmm. the most important thing it's not even to the unconscious mind i should say it is but a small part of a larger whole meaning like if this is the to totality of who i am my ego is just this little thing mm -hmm. and to say i am everything it's actually ignoring this whole other part so what we do in psychology or in analytical psychology and all of all psychologies do this is that we start to incorporate the unconscious into the ego, the feminine parts of us, the unconscious, unprocessed fear and emotion that's sitting from our childhood over here. We mm -hmm. have to access that and grow it into our conscious awareness. And this, mm -hmm. weirdly enough, starts to make us not feel so separate. So like, let's say you experience a terrible experience when you're a kid. That part of you gets frozen and then thrown into a jail in the unconscious mind. Yeah, you're trying to suppress it. Right. And yeah. it's because the ego does this to protect you. It's normal. It's okay that it happened. Um, but once you're capable of digesting that experience, processing it, it's time to open up your ego and let in the new, the old experience. And that always feels uncomfortable for the ego. But this inviting in of the young child who was so hurt and saying hey bud you're okay we made it the parts of you that are lonely and afraid start to get attention hmm. you give yourself attention essentially and so through this you become more whole and then you start attracting community it's where it's you do inner work and it yeah. shows up in your outer world I and mean, it's bonkers I don't know, you know, I don't know why it works. We could talk about frequencies. We could talk about whatever, but <laughs> it doesn't really matter. It just happens. You just have to experience it and then you'll believe in it because yeah. you have experienced it. It goes in first and then out um, in my experience. You've got mm -hmm. to work on your inner world. Although sometimes with addiction recovery, being safe and being in a group of people that you're safe with can give you enough freedom to go inward. Yes. Meaning sometimes it needs to come first. That's what like I love AA 12 step programs are so awesome for getting the community so that you can feel safe enough to then start working on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that's like, it's too much to do on your own and you do just need your hand held at the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. it can be terrifying going into oh, yeah. our unconscious mind. It's very oh, yeah. scary. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's I avoided so cool. it for 27 years, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of people do. And we just let the ego run the show so that we don't have to deal with it. 
Yeah. And yeah. you'll know your ego's running the show if things aren't getting better. You're just getting more miserable. People start leaving you and not liking you. You become more isolated in the outer world. That's mm -hmm. a very, very good symbol that you are isolating from your inner world as well. Mm -hmm. What advice or words of wisdom would you offer to our listeners who are embarking on their own journeys of self-discovery and personal transformation? Like what key principles or practices could guide them in their quest for purpose, meaning and freedom? I have a little free starter kit in my link. It's really simple stuff that were so important for me. And I think a lot of people refer to it as like dopamine resets and stuff like that. But like, it's really quite important to start giving your life a little bit of structure. So what I did is I started going to bed at a decent time and waking up at a decent time. And what is decent, you'll be able to tell. If you wake up and you're like, I'm a piece of shit because I slept in too much, you wake up earlier. You That's how you calibrate. You know you need to wake <laughs> up earlier based off of your own integrity, right? So I call it bookends, to have a routine in the morning and a routine right before you go to bed. This routine could be five seconds or two hours long, whatever. I wake up, I make my bed, I do 30 push-ups. I hate it. I don't like doing that. But when I do it and I'm done, I have a fresh palate uh, for my reward system, for my dopamine and my serotonin reward system. I get rewarded when I do simple tasks in the morning. I'm regulating my whole system for the rest of the day. Then I meditate. Well, I make coffee and I meditate with my coffee. I love that. And I meditate 45 minutes, but you can meditate for three minutes. It doesn't matter. If you like it, go for more. But um, just practice meditation, which means sit on the floor and watch what happens. Nothing's wrong. Everything that happens, all of the anxiety that you feel is correct. It's okay. It's like watching. I, I tell people it's like watching. Like if you were a parent and you brought your kid to the playground you let them loose and there's all the chaos, all the kids running around, people are fighting, people are kissing, whatever. You just watch it. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing right. You're just witnessing it. And then I get on with, well, and then I do a cold shower. And these things regulate my my system, but also there's spiritual stuff to that too. Like this start to my day has changed my life. And then before I go to bed, I do 30 push-ups and I do a little mantra prayer type thing and i do stretching i stretch before i go to bed and oh by the way i added those things slowly like you can just start by making your bed when you wake up and stretching when you go to bed something really simple right just give yourself a start to your day and an end to your day this this like hones in the cyclical nature of us where we like a flower we open up while the sun's out and we close back up during the night we open up when the sun's out and we close back up and we need to get synced with these cycles um, we are cyclical creatures, not linear creatures. So mm -hmm. I think that's like, that will catalyst you into having energy, having the serotonin to continue exploring new ideas and working on yourself. But you have to start to, you have to start with the, the bedrock, the, the flower bed, you know? Mm, yeah, that's great. I've read your spiritual starter kit and there's a fair bit more stuff in it. So I will put the links in the show notes for anyone who's interested because there is a bit more gold in there than you've given us today, but we'll keep that for those that are interested. A spiritual starter kit. Basically, I read that your basic concept of spirituality is that like, so people don't get confused on like, what is spirituality? I think people might think it has to do with religion or whatever, but 
basically the heart of spirituality is it's a personality change that's sufficient enough to elevate unnecessary suffering yeah i love that so you have your own podcast it's called suspending disbelief so i wanted to ask you what does it mean to suspend disbelief Mm. so i got that term from robert bosnack who is a a jungian analyst who is world renowned for his work in alchemy and in ai actually working on um, artificial intelligence and stuff like that he's brilliant and uh he uses the word and i love it but my understanding of it is that we get so caught up in what is real and what's not real what's correct what's not correct what's good what's bad right and we will immediately assign judgment to what we're hearing you start talking and i say bullshit or yes i agree right suspending disbelief is saying I'm not going to make a decision how I feel or what I think about this until we're done talking. Mm. I'm going to suspend my disbelief. I'm going to suspend my bullshit meter and stay open. I don't need to join a cult in the middle of a conversation. I don't need to, you know, I'm just going to suspend it and then reevaluate once I'm done hearing the whole thing. Mm. So suspending disbelief, I believe, is what we need much more of in our world. I used to do this all the time and I've been really trying not to is as someone's talking to me, I used to instantly start thinking, what am I going to say back? Mm -hmm. And as they're still talking, I'm thinking of what my response is going to be before I've even heard the rest of the story. Yeah. And you're not, can't even listen to them anymore. Right. Cause you got so many thoughts in your head. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like pausing everything, letting them finish and removing yourself from the story because it's got nothing to do with you at this point. It's just listening to the whole thing, listening to it like wholeheartedly, intently, all the way to the end. And you know what? That person might not even want your input. They might just be telling you it for some other reason. They don't actually want to hear what you have to say back about it. Like who knows? Or they might. But if you give it enough attention and hold yourself back before interjecting, you know, you have a a better way to respond. You have a more heartfelt way to respond yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. I think that this is huge when it comes to uh, relationships too. communicating mm. is like um, suspending judgment is another way to say it. Suspend your opinion mm. just while you're talking. Um, stay open, say, be more comfortable saying, I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. Mm. I'm not sure how I think about that. Give me some time. I'll come back to I'll come back to this tomorrow. That's hard to do for most people. It is. Including myself. I want to know. I want you to think I know everything right now. I have strong opinions and I have strong (laughs) beliefs. You know, it's like most of the time, if you give me the chance, I actually don't know. You know, I actually can zoom out enough to be like, you know what? I'm not quite sure. There's so many possibilities. And I think we should be more open to that. Yeah. New paradigms. Great. Excellent. So for everyone listening, if you'd like to check out Jared's podcast, Suspending Disbelief, I've got the links in the show notes below. As long as, like I said, his free spiritual starter kit, um, his snip feed links and his website, his Instagram, TikTok, everything. Check him out. Oh, and music. So I'm going to leave you with some more of his new music. Enjoy. I love it. It's a total journey. I'm a projector type meaning i don't do a i can't be out here promoting myself so so much but i'm totally open for invitations if you guys have ideas you if you want me on your podcast whatever it is invite me and Mm. i'll probably have the energy for it but Mm. i have to be invited Mm. if that makes sense
Yeah, definitely. And I, I saw on your website that you do have set prices, but if someone's really in need of your help and they can't really afford it, then they're able to contact you and you guys can kind of work on an agreeable amount together. So if you do check out Jared's website and you think, oh, that's a bit too steep, I'm doing it tough at the moment, but you feel like he'd be really, really helpful um, for yourself, then reach out, send him a message and have a chat about what can be agreed upon. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you, Jared. Thank you. It's been amazing. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was very fun.